Now you want to talk about reading? Let's talk about reading. Let me tell you of the days of high adventure. The book served as a passageway to the evil worlds beyond. Ready to go, Doc? Oh, yes, yes, my dear fellow. I'll just check the gyroscopes. Hello, and welcome back to the Appendix N Book Club. This is episode 135 on Carolyn Stevemer's A College of Magics. And with me today is that warden of the East Coast, Hoy. Keeping the uh, poles up and down where they should be. <laughs> <laughs> and we are also joined by the digital artist and illustrator known for her medieval style, whose works can be found in many Chaosium and indie RPG products, like A History of Melkonianism for RuneQuest and many others. Today, we are joined by Katrin Dirum. Hey. And I apologize for not pronouncing your last name correctly. It's, as I said, it's fine. <laughs> it's, it's a name that English speakers are allergic to. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Listeners, Katrin was being very patient while she tried to coach me how to pronounce her last name, and I was just kept saying the same thing over and over again. So I'm <laughs> I'm, I'm very embarrassed by that, but that's that's the reality of the situation we're in at this moment. Katrin, it's it's really fun to have you on. Uh, I've been a fan of your work for a while uh, yes. through Twitter. I was wondering. Um, well, we'll dive into your story, but I, want, I was wondering what the effect of all this Twitter nonsense has been on your you know, visibility and stuff like that, you know? Not that much, honestly. I, I've kind of just decided that I'm going to ignore all of it. <laughs> like I do with many of the, um, many, whenever there's like a large thing going on, I try not to jump into it. And it's been working out pretty well for me, so, I can, so I'm going to keep doing that. <laughs> <laughs> right. I know that there's a lot of, you know, uh, especially fantasy artists, that's their, their, their main way of getting visibilities on Twitter. But then there's mm -hmm. obviously the, the upsides and downsides with that. And and just the medium itself is not that, that suited because it crops the art in very strange ways and other things like that, too. So Yeah, I've found that ultimately these things tend to be more mild annoyances than big huh. issues. <laughs> Right. That, that's the right that's the right attitude to take. <laughs> yeah, it seems like it seems like you're having a very um moderate and realistic perspective with this. <laughs> <laughs> so uh Katrin, what is your history with RPGs and gaming? I first started on with in school, back with some friends. Um mostly very simple games and uh, that we expanded on with homebrew rules and and similar. Um Pretty much always one shots. Uh, a lot of Star Wars themed games, but I don't okay. haven't done them a lot lately. Um, I've been always kind of vaguely. It's been a hobby of mine ever since, though I've only managed to play sporadically. Mm -hmm. I tend to be the GM most of the time. Um, and I see you do a lot with RuneQuest. Is RuneQuest your system of choice? Lately, yes. Um, what really got me into the game is more the setting. Lorenta, which is, which is just a very, a very unique setting. Um, yeah, and a very and a very deep and good one. Uh, when I first read Rune, the RuneQuest rules, I wasn't totally convinced by them. Um, but after running it a few times, they I kind of feel they work a lot better than they do in reading. Um, a lot of the elements that it has a lot of elements that seem very complex, like the parrying rules and the um, mm -hmm. weapon durability. But in practice, those things don't tend to be 
as time consuming or complicated as they seem. Mm. For example, the whole weapon durability thing, the game is built on the assumption that you're spending like a season between adventures just living your life. So that means you don't crack that over many sessions. It's just there to give you moments of tensions in combat when your spear breaks in half and you've got to deal with that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> what what is the sort of Turkish RPG scene like? Is it uh, a lot of uh, is there a lot of domestic product? Is it all available through imports and translation? What what how is what is that like? I have not seen a single Turkish RPG. I've I've played with some people here. There are some cafes that offer um spaces for RPGs or even events. I know that the, a very big scene is in the Batu, the Mito University, the Middle East Technical University, but I haven't really, I mean, I've never been to the, there and I'm not a student, so that's not really a space I have access to without putting effort in it, which I haven't done yet. Sure. Um, so yeah, overall, it's people mostly play um, games like... Hmm. Now that I think about it, it's, pre- it's been a pretty diverse bunch of games I've seen. It doesn't feel like you know, D&D is the default. I've seen mm-hmm. Vampire the Masquerade, I've seen Warhammer games, um, the RPGs. I've seen quite a big diversity there. People seem to like the World of Darkness games. <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. At least in my personal experience yeah. um, here in Ankara. And what is your history with uh, speculative fiction, fantasy, sci-fi, and horror fiction? I mean... It's basically something I've loved since I have memories, more or less. Like, my grandmother used to read me books like that. <laughs> and mm-hmm. I just kept going. <laughs> Never stopped. So your love of the fiction predates your love of the game. Oh, absolutely. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Well, um, I mean, again, being in Turkey, we just so immersed both in it's the crossroads between Asia and, and Europe and so much history, both ancient history, medieval history, paleolithic art. How immersed were you in that growing up? And and when did you make that connection between your, your sort of fantasy work and sort of more historical work? My interest in speculative fiction has always been kind of tied in with my interest in history and mythology, especially. My father is exactly like that. He knows a lot about mythology and he loves mythology too. And Growing up, he, he told me many of those stories. He took me to many museums, to many of the old cities here. There's a very beautiful museum here in Ankara, the Museum of Anatolian Civilizations, um, that spans from Neolithic to Bronze Age. And it's and I was there a lot as a, as a child, too. And yeah, it's definitely something that stuck with me. And if you were to recommend a few books for our listeners to, to check out on their own, what would you recommend? Oh, it's, that's a tough question. Um, okay, well, some that I have here on my shelf. Um, I, I'm not sure how many of them are translated, but there is a German author called Batemers who writes books in this fantastical world called Zamonia, and it's very strange and very wacky and <laughs> incredibly creative with a very fun writing style. I highly recommend it. Otherwise, lately, I've last year, I've basically read most of the books by Adrian Tchaikovsky, and he's quickly become one of my favorite authors. Um, he also has very creative and intricate, intricate worlds and, and interesting stories in them. I like the Echoes of the Fall series, starting with the Tiger of the Wolf, where it's set in a world of shapeshifters, um, who each have an animal deity. And it's just very, it does a very good job of integrating the 
mythical dimension with the mundane dimension in the world. And finally, let me think of one more thing. Um, one book that I was thinking about while reading the book for this um, for this podcast, while reading A College of Magics, but which I'll probably also talk about because it's also Alternate History, is Mary Gentle's A Secret History. It's a mm, book nice. that very few people know about, I think, but that v- surprised me very much and left a deep impression on me. It's not an easy book to read, but it's very impressive. <laughs> What's funny about that is at the time of us recording this episode, this will not be true when this episode is released, but at the time of us recording it, Mary Gentle's A Secret History is one of the four books that's currently up for our, our patrons to vote on as a possible book for us to cover. Um, and the theme for that poll is alternate histories. At the moment, Susanna Clark's Jonathan Strange and Mr. Norrell is winning that poll, but Mary Gentle's A Secret History is, is one of the four titles being voted on. If the poll's up, you can write that I endorse it. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. There you go. <laughs> you a guest Absolutely. endorsement that has to count for at least 10 votes. <laughs> <laughs> So today we're discussing A College of Magics. So I guess we can um, uh, go ahead and start with our Hygaxian word of the day. Hoy, what you got for us? I think I'm going to go with Adam's word this week. Uh, Jackanapes, which is uh, an impertinent person. Also, an even more archaic reading of it is a tame monkey. So um, I forget what page he cited in there, but basically someone who's just uh, foolish, uh, impertinent, uh, generally sassy is a Jackanapes. It's it's one of those words where I don't actually I didn't actually know what it means while reading, but I didn't have to look it up because the context made it very obvious what it meant. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Cool. And now we can take a look at which edition of the book we're working with. I've got the uh, 2002 Starscape paperback with the Tom Kid cover. Nice. And the cover is very YA. We've got. Ferris looking off into the distance as she's releasing her her um, her love of Galazon to mend the rift. Uh, what, what have you got, Hoy? Uh, I was reading the hardcover from the Brooklyn Public Library, and that was the original Tor one from 1994, and had a Richard Bober cover. But I had to return it because someone actually had it on reserve, and so I felt really bad about holding it on for extra days, just in case, especially in case that they were an actual listener of the show, because I don't believe that book has been checked out in like 15 years from the Brooklyn Public Library. <laughs> so, oh, wow. Well, I could be wrong. So I hope you're reading it now, whoever you are. What's what's cool about the cover you had, Hoy, is it reminds me of a um, of a reimagining of the Wizard of Earthsea cover that they had for um, the Ballantine paperback series. Mm-hmm. And Bober did uh, some really nice art for um, not the original um, uh, Sever- Severian books, but I think the Long Sun books for um, the Gene Wolfe books, the subsequent books in the, the Earth of the New Sun series. So um, very sort of pearlescent. Um, I don't know if uh, the, the thumbnail on the website is terrible, so I don't have one to show you, but Catherine, you maybe could find it. You might have a sense of what, what his style is like. Um, but I don't think he's doing much recently, but styles going out of fashion these days, paperback art seems to be a lot more sort of sort of Photoshop based. Uh, not that there's anything wrong with working in a digital medium, but it's more like Photoshop of an existing pose or something like that. And then it's, some, it's less that it's in a digital medium and it's more it's just stock images, slightly right. manipulated. <laughs> right, right. Um, and actually, I was struck by your work because it's 
somehow more two-dimensional but still vivid in a way that a lot of this sort of stock images is theoretically three-dimensional but not at all vivid you know <laughs> that's that's uh thank you it's that's kind of the thing i'm trying to get at where where um you know with my style i want people to look at it and think that it belongs into that it has a world behind it you know mm -hmm. does it make sense <laughs> yeah um, anyway, and sorry, Catherine, sorry, 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 from the book there for a second. <laughs> which edition were you working yeah, with? I just got it as an ebook. It says here that it's the October 2002 version. Um, it has the same cover as uh, Jeff's version. So I I like that cover. It's, I just think it's neat. <laughs> <laughs> it has emotion to it. You know, yeah, it has nice colors. Yeah. Perfect. And we are adding in a very short new segment. And I would like to give uh, thanks to one of our listeners named Jason for suggesting this. But um, Jason suggested that since not everybody who listens to the show read the book, that we um, also do a quick plot recap, a quick plot synopsis. So I googled um, a College of Magic's plot synopsis, and I found a nice short one on Publishers Weekly. So I'm going to go ahead and read that one for our listeners who might not have read it. A gentle fantasy set in turn-of-the-century Paris. Quick side note, it's not just in Paris. It's all throughout alternate, century, alternate history Europe. But anyways, a gentle fantasy set in turn-of-the-century Paris. This novel's magic takes varied forms. Some sorceress, an anarchist bomb transformed into a feathered hat. And some technological, an early motor car ride. Young ladies of good families are sent to Greenlaw College to acquire the social graces and become marriageable. But also, some learn varying degrees of witchery, although it is expressly forbidden to practice magic on campus. Teen Helian Ferris Nalanine, Duchess of Galazon, her best friend slash social arbiter Jane Brailsford and Ferris's blood enemy are all expelled from Greenlaw after exercising hitherto unguessed magical talents. Ferris and Jane head to Paris, where Ferris discovers that she is to inherit not only the throne of Galazon, but also the supernatural posts of Warden of the North. One wishes Stevermer had described the particulars of this elevation, but in fact, this narrative is weighted more toward romance than conventional fantasy. Though Ferris can see things no one else can, she also endures custom fittings of haute couture, masked balls, marriage proposals by middle-aged kings, and ambitious socialites, socialists alike. <laughs> um, attacks by politically incorrect highwaymen and an attempted poisoning on the Orient Express, Orient Express as she attempts to take her rightful title. Clever and witty at its best, this is a generally pleasant read. So that is the plot synopsis of A College of Magics, and we can now head on into the library. Katrin, what did you think of A College of Magics? Okay, first of all, politically incorrect highwaymen. I, I'm not... But it says politically correct highwaymen. Politically correct highwaymen. I'm still not quite <laughs> sure how that, <laughs> how that applies, but... Yeah, uh, I'm not sure either. <laughs> what did I think of the book? I mean, I think it mostly did not have many of the things I usually look for in a fantasy novel. I, mm -hmm. But I think it did a good job at achieving what it was trying to achieve in its own narrative. What are you normally looking for in a fantasy novel that you did not find here? One thing is um, more complex world building, more unique world building. Um, 
here's where this, a secret history comes in. A secret history is alternate history. It's incredibly well-researched to the point where it includes details about how heraldic terminology changed as a consequence of the Hundred Years' War. And it uses this deep research very well to ground you in the world and consequently add in more and more layers of weirdness to it. So when by the end of the book, you're dealing with golems and endless nights and great magical things, but it all still feels very grounded in the, in the world. Yeah, which makes sense why you, as a lover of Glorantha, also loves really in-depth world building, because that's very much what Glorantha mm-hmm. is all about, mm-hmm. too. So it sounds like that's very much the, th- the stuff that gets you really excited is really thorough and thought-out world building that's then ex- expressed on the page. And, yes, and I don't want to say the world building here was necessarily bad, either. Um, it, mm-hmm. it also gives some hints to why the things are the way they are. It tells you about... Um, the Duchies of Gazan, all the ones. It's you can glean some history of it from through the pages, but still, it, it still feels a bit. It's still not as deep as I'd like it to go. But right. yeah, again, yeah. And one more thing about the world that was a bit funny for me about reading because I didn't read a major plot synopsis, and when I went into the book, I thought at first it was a, a pure fantasy world. Um, Mm-hmm. Because the only places mentioned were Galazon and some others there, and the character has this name that sounds like it might be from a fantasy world. And then at one point, the first mention of any real world place that I that I noticed was when they mentioned that the cook is English, and it really just kind of took me completely aback reading that. <laughs> <laughs> now you had mentioned that you do think that what um, that this book did a good job at what it was trying to accomplish. You don't think that it was necessarily trying to accomplish mm-hmm. the thing that you normally look for in fantasy, but you think it was successful at doing this other thing. Yeah. What is this other thing that you think it was successful at? It is a very complete narrative, I mm. feel like. You know, all the elements that show up are brought back together, and, and the characters that it focuses on go on a journey that progresses and concludes in a way that makes sense and is ultimately also satisfying to read. Um, yeah. Though I, I do, I, I will say that quite a lot of the characters also feel quite shallow, <laughs> most of the se- secondary characters. Yeah, I think that's a criticism, Jeff, you had mentioned about some of the male characters in particular, right? That um, It was. I, I had mentioned in our patron book club that um, we've co- we've read a lot of male authors as a part of this project, and one of the frequent criticisms we encounter is that a lot of the male authors don't really know how to write female characters. And I feel like with 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 the College of Magics, I feel like a lot of the the female characters are fantastic, have a lot of depth and a lot of personality. I think Ferris and Jane are great characters, but then when I look at um, at Tyrion, for example, Tyrion is just like the 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 dreamy hunk who like you know has a sword, um, and like yeah he turns into a cat and then yeah he turns into a king, but like I just I I kept imagining I don't know if you watch Bob's Burgers but I just kept imagining uh, Jimmy Junior, uh, which is the character that Tina's in love with on Bob's Burgers, um, and. 
And then, like, I feel like Uncle Brinker, mm-hmm. um, the, as a villain, was also, like, a little two-dimensional. But, um, but yeah, so I, I feel like some of the characters were really great and really fleshed out. And some of them did feel a little, um, a little like we had an archetype. And then we didn't really dig deeper into it. Yeah, one character that I know I had trouble really buying as a character was also um, Melanie, like um, who was the yeah, yeah. Yeah, Melanie, Melanie. yeah, yeah, because yeah. I know she she shows up, isn't asked for no reason, um, <laughs> and ultimately just keeps on being terrible with no real reason until the end. Now, Hoy, you really liked Menery. I liked Menery <laughs> for her evilness, but I have a take which is maybe not necessarily supported, but just my theory about it. And this relates to both the fact that generally magic extracts a price. And they, they specifically mentioned that Menery's magic is unusual. They're not sure where it comes from. And I feel like that Menery was exposed to the rift as a child, so young, and she got this power before she could even meaningfully consent to having this power. So the power is basically, that's basically all she is. is she is just this power. It's, 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 she never got to be a young girl the way that Ferris or Jane or any of the other characters got to be, you know? Yes. I think that's strongly implied in the text. And, yeah. but, but I feel about that leads to is a character who is robbed from, of any development before she even appears in the story. And none of the tragic undertones of this are ever explored in the book. Right. Right. And then she just yeah pops out like a candle. That's yeah. interesting. When she disappears, she pops out like a candle. Mm-hmm. She doesn't have to, uh, well, and especially because what she, she doesn't send Menery into the Rift. She sends the powers that Menery got from the Rift into the Rift. And when she did that, Menery just flickered out like a candle. Right, right. Um, to your point about world building, I thought something that was interesting um, is that uh, she was definitely, in the text, was definitely not as concerned with building cultures Um and that sort of those kind of artifacts that that seem to be inform a lot of your work, Catherine. Uh, uh, but I think that some, one thing she was successful at was she was very successful at describing uh, landscape and textures mm-hmm. uh, and seasons. And so I think that was a concern that, I mean, we had had Carolyn Stevermer on the show and she talked about, you know, growing up on a farm and seeing all the seasons and, and you know, being sort of a little bit sort of more physically isolated and not from you know, like a major city or something like that. So I think she was very successful in that regard in world building. Definitely. I think the world building is very functional. Like it works yeah. very well to support the narrative it's building. It, it reminds mm-hmm. me a lot of a book that's of books that are very different, which is the books by Joe Abercrombie, um, the first mm-hmm. law books and similar, which are kind of the opposite of these books in, in many ways, but they also have world building that's very functional and serves mostly just to, um, you know, further narrative and it's not bad world building it's internally consistent and it works but when i read it it just doesn't go as deep as i'd like it to right right <laughs> but i recognize yeah. that that's a personal thing right it's definitely not cultural it does inform ferris's pers- pers- personality though her her sort of her love for her homeland and stuff like that but it's not a cultural thing it's a very personal uh, uh connection to the landscape um yeah it and it reminds me of uh, maybe something that would be better suited for the gaming conversation. But while we're here, um, also how when it comes to my gaming style, the idea of going into a world like Glorantha for me is a, is a, is a big ask because there's so much, there's so much world building. There's so much knowledge that is needed to really kind of run a world like that, that I much prefer 
um, the style of world building in gaming where we just start with a town and together we just kind of build the world as we need to as it goes. And I kind of feel like this book is maybe more in style with my uh, with my play style than it is in, than it is in um, than it is with your play style, perhaps. I don't want to go too off tangent here, and like complex settings like Grantor also still provide a lot of wiggle room. But again, mm-hmm. not go off tangent. But mentioning the landscape descriptions, one thing about the book is that I like the writing style of it a lot. Often when I go into a book, it becomes clear pretty quickly whether I, I'll actually finish it or not. Um, because it's just that some styles of writing don't work for me, not because they're bad, but often because they're simply just not presented in a way that I can easily absorb. Um, but here, and I was a bit worried that if this is the case here, I might have trouble actually finishing the book um, for in time for the podcast, but that wasn't the issue at all. I, I went through the book very quickly, um, and the way it was written, the, the dialogues, the descriptions are all engaging and easy to digest. Yeah. Now, it's really hard to escape a comparison to Harry Potter. Obviously. (laughs) Just because, yeah, Magic School, first book from the 90s, maybe even female author, all of that kind of stuff can make... And like whenever you read any of the blurbs about A College of Magic, it always seems to be referencing how it's like but not like Harry Potter... Um, what's kind of your take on this for somebody who like wants a Harry Potter book that's written by somebody who isn't a monster? <laughs> I mean, <laughs> the book isn't a, it's not a Harry Potter book. It's, yeah, it's, not it's a, a different story it's telling. It's a different character and setting aside the fact that there is a magic school. It's just, it's just about a different thing than Harry Potter at its core, you know, about a different journey. Yeah. The book, the school in this book is, mostly incidental and i could imagine the book being written easily without the school at all (laughs) yeah Mm -hmm. and so this is so what one of the things i love about the book is that um our main character is in a book club Mm -hmm. that reads three (laughs) volume fantasy adventure novels and this is a three volume fantasy adventure novel it's just a very cute like little winky winky thing like in and of itself but what what is interesting though is only the first volume of the three volumes of this book take place at the school so only one third of this book takes place at the at a college of magics Mm -hmm. yeah yeah and and it's a very weird idea of like, you know, school, like the, the lessons imparted are incredibly vague, if any, right? There's no, they're not mm-hmm. actually taught magic. They're not allowed to practice magic. Right? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, it's, again, the school isn't really about the school. It's more about the connection the character forms at the school. Right. No, it's more about the Which, people she needs. Mm-hmm. And, and again, I think, uh, Jeff, we had talked about whether, you know, we had that experience or not, but. Uh, when we, again we had Carolyn Stephen run, it was very clearly infl- very important for her. She came from, again from a small town and got to a college with a lot of very sophisticated people, and a bunch of them eventually also became fa- uh, fantasy writers. So, having that mm-hmm. formative experience in your lifetime mm-hmm. or some kind of formative experience and for her, clearly going to college, um, but she was able to make it not her story. We were we know because she told us that she had that in- experience, but the experience that Ferris has is clearly not an autobiographical experience. 
right? Other than that emotion of having a connection, you know? And I think even if we hadn't had a conversation with, with Carolyn Stevemer, I think I would still know that from reading this. Mm-hmm. You know, I just recently watched uh, Fleischman is in Trouble, which is a really fantastic TV series that's just one season on Hulu. And, um, and it's about three people in their early 40s who were all friends together in college. And I did, when I was 18 years old, I just moved, graduated high school and moved to Seattle and started working in record stores. I didn't do that thing where, I didn't do that 18-year-old thing of going to college, moving in the dorms. I didn't have that whole experience. But it really seems like this book is exploring what that experience is like, the kind of friendships that you make in the process of doing that. But also what I think is interesting about this story is that she really comes into her own on her 21st birthday when she becomes the Warden of the North. And it makes me think about how when I was 18 years old and I moved to Seattle, that's really when I came into my own and I got to leave the shackles of childhood and like really become an adult and become a fully actualized person. And I did that at 18, but I think a lot of people do that at 22 when they graduate college with their bachelor's degree and then go out into the world. So I I also think it's not only exploring those connections you make in college, but it's also exploring at the end of this, becoming a fully actualized person once you step out of that, and you can kind of step into the the real world and, and, and be the person who you want to be in that world. It's kind of a fantasy of that as well. I can see that my own experience with university is a lot more chaotic, so it's not really something I can completely follow in that sense. And so that's not something I really picked up on there. Yeah. Yeah, I think it very much speaks to um, that part of the story, I think, speaks to a person with a very specific set of experiences, which is one that I think is very common in the U.S., Um but it's not one that I had, but it's still one that I had. I had one close enough to it, just, you know, turning 18 and mo- leaving rural America and moving to the big city. Um, there was a very, there was a big change in my life at that point. So I can relate to it enough because I have something similar-ish to it. I don't even think, and as someone who actually even works at a university, I'm not even convinced that it's that common of experience in this day and age. I think it was a very specific experience of the mid 20th, mid to late 20th century. Because I think there's so much pressure for students now that they're constantly thinking about, oh, I just have to take this course and pass this course and get my career started. And there's almost not enough time to make friends on college campuses, even if it's a residential campus, the way that there was 20, 30 years ago, uh, or let alone uh, in the 70s. So it's a little unfortunate. Um, And I know that a lot of... I think that that culture still exists at a lot of state schools. Yeah, possibly. Um, But, but yeah, definitely. Yeah. I don't think that's true of all colleges. Yeah. And I know that a lot of European universities and others are, are more sort of like a, a little bit more like a commuter model. I mean, they may have dormitories, but a little bit more like, oh, you're, you go to the university in your city and you, you do this and, and it's less, um, you know, less of, you know, there may be places where people congregate and study and make good friendships, but not like, oh, I'm living together with somebody for like the specific study room for three years. Yeah. Um, I went to university in Germany and there it's, I mean, I went to this, there weren't any specific university dormitories, really. There were student housing available, like with with rooms and like groups of students, but not in the in the way that's as it's organized in the US from what I, from what I know. You know I never mm-hmm. had a roommate, yeah. for example. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah. And my experience was also very different. I went to community college in my early to mid twenties and then didn't get my first degree until I was 38. So um, my experience definitely doesn't match what's, what's being explored mm-hmm. here, but um, transitioning this over to a gaming side of the conversation, um, I'm definitely curious. I mean, this is maybe not related to start with, but um, I would love to hear more about what you were talking about before about the tangent of Glorantha and um, going into uh, um, game mastering in 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 a setting that's already very very fleshed out, Forgotten Realms, Glorantha. What what are what is what is your approach to people who uh, to people who are curious about how they can start doing that? Okay, so when you read a RuneQuest book or any book about Glorantha, there is always a section that. Uh, comes with the slogan, um, your Glorantha will vary, and it kind of drills it into your head that you're not supposed to take this as a gospel. And yeah. you shouldn't approach GMing there necessarily in the sense of, this is a list of things I have to have in the game. It's more about understanding the underlying logic of the u- of the world, of the universe. You know, because in Glorantha, think the universe functions on myth. You know, everything has a mythic equi- equivalent. There are everything is connected to the runes, which are kind of primal expressions of general elements and concepts, kind of like platonic ideals. And if you kind of get a basic understanding of that, you can you can very quickly um, just whenever you're in a situation in the game, you can this is the lens through which you ap- approach it. So in a way, it's more of a yeah, yeah. it's more of a lens through which to approach the game rather than you know. A big mess of encyclopedia. For example, you're um, you want to solve a problem in a you want to give your players a problem to solve. Let's say a neighboring village has trouble with their crops. What trouble could that be? And then, like, you don't even need to have a preset scenario or read about the, any possible type of things that can fall crops. You just have to think: okay, how do things work in this world? There's probably some sort of disease spread going around. And then you work from there. Cool. I like that. That's very helpful. One thing I've, I mean, I've never played uh, RuneQuest, although I've had various editions, you know, across my thing. Mm -hmm. Um, One thing I really think that's interesting, and I know that Greg Stafford emphasizes from the very beginning, was that D&D, for all sort of European trappings, is really a game like an American Western, essentially, (laughs) right? The characters are essentially rootless. They come into situations, they, you know, they go into the wilderness Whereas Glorantha, all the characters are so very much rooted in their mm-hmm. tribe, their clan, their religion. Um, so, and I've noticed that uh, specifically RuneQuest in the Glorantha forum has a very strong appeal, for example, in the UK and large parts of Europe, which I think where people do feel more situated in their mm-hmm. social milieu in a way that Americans can be a little bit more like, oh, I'm just reinventing myself all the time. Right. And, um, I'm wondering if that you think that that's a grain. Uh, there's a grain of truth to that thought. And the thing is, Greg Stafford was Californian. <laughs> it is, I can see it to a point, but also the way that um, your life is rooted in these um, expanding, basically social circles, and that's something that happens everywhere. Um, mm-hmm. And I guess it's it's more about how. When you're playing D&D, um, of course, it depends on how you play. But on a ba- in a basic sense, y- the way you approach the community is um, 
often a bit as an outsider. You you help your local community, the local communities. You, of course, uh, in most games, in most games, you're not just going around destroying things. You're making connections, but often you're kind of coming in as an outsider. Uh, and I think that's that's more something to do with this sort of uh, this archetype that's very common in fantasy of the hero who doesn't really belong to anywhere. Mm-hmm. You know, like yeah, you know, Conan or the classic cowboy, <laughs> and less necessarily totally. with a with a cultural experience between the U.S. and Europe, because I don't think it's it's that fundamentally different. And so, bringing this more um, focused back onto a College of Magics for a moment, mm-hmm. what are the things that you guys encountered in this text that you thought would be really fun to take and use in your games in some way? One thing that I really liked, um, and this was an idea that came up in the patron book club when somebody else was talking about um, Hilari- um, or, or um, yeah, Hilarion, and I was thinking about how in the in the big climax scene when Tyrion dies, he's holding on to that key, and then um, and then we find out later that when Tyrion died, he actually swapped bodies with the king. So the king actually died in Tyrion's body and Tyrion is now in the king's body. I thought it would be really cool in a game if you ended up doing something for a powerful NPC and they gave you this this item that they don't tell you what it's for, but they let you know that you should carry it with you at all times and and um, and it'll it'll help you down the road. And then if your character ever dies and they're still holding on to this thing, you swap bodies with whoever killed you and you're not, you, 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 and you live on in their body. I think that could be a really cool item. Definitely. For me, one element that stood out in that sense is the hat bump. Um, I love the hat bump. <laughs> yeah, I, think right. it works. <laughs> I think it works exactly like all the best magic items in a, in a game work because mm-hmm. what, the moment the head bump is introduced um, and it stays throughout the book, every in every scene you're thinking, what's going to happen with the head bump? Now? <laughs> 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 and I feel that that's the kind of energy magic items in general should have. Yeah. yeah. Yes. <laughs> How about you, Hoy? Um, well, I just um, really like the idea of the the, the journey planning the journey, the parallel journeys. Uh, I mean, this is not unique to this book, but, you know, okay, they're on the train route and they have to worry, okay, should we get off the train early because we might get intercepted by the agents of, you know, Aravis and, and Menery, and, of course, there's an assassination attempt right on the train itself. Um, so the timing, like the fact that they kind of have to leave Paris before they're quite ready. Um, so not a little hex crawl, but more of the sort of point crawl model. Um, and then realizing that there's an active opposition. So like, okay, if we go here, we might encounter these agents of Erebus. And so they decide to go the back route and they go with the politically correct bandit, right? <laughs> right as we say, with her former, her former uh, you know, childhood sweetheart. How is he politically I no, correct? I, no I don't get that part. I think it's also a thing that, that is one of, the, one of my favorite things about the book. The whole journey is, is executed very well. That's how I'd like to run and the best um, travel sequences I've had in my games have been one similar to this. <laughs> yes, 
Another sequence I really liked with that, um, or actually it's not, it's the same sequence, but one looking at that same sequence from a gaming perspective. So she's returning to Galazon and her carriage is um, surrounded by bandits. And in a normal Dungeons and Dragons game, okay, roll initiative. But in this case, it turns out she knows him. Mm-hmm. She recognizes him. And I think a lot of story games have elements that would allow for you to do something like that. You could go ahead and, you know, spend some kind of a story point or a Benny to, to say that I know this person. But also in systems like Dungeon Crawl Classics, I could imagine a situation where a player might say, well, hey, actually, we're in Galazon now, and my character's from Galazon. Is there any chance that I know any of these bandits? And then I could see the judge being like, I don't know, make a luck check. And then you make a luck check, and yeah, it turns out that like one of these bandits is you know, your, 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 your teenage love, and things didn't work out, but you guys still think very fondly of each other. And now you have a very different way of interacting with that scene than just you know, pulling out your sword. That's the thing the the whole community thing Lorenta also really helps with. Especially with the new edition also ha- giving you a whole family history so you can you can really play that into the game. Uh, put that into mm-hmm. the game very well like this. <laughs> yeah. Well, that reminds me, on page 68, they say, don't discuss your family tree with anyone. It isn't polite. <laughs> so <laughs> so you can do that, but just be aware that it's not very polite to do. Um, I mean, <laughs> I'm a big believer in using the reaction roll table from classic D&D, which I think is is kind of underutilized, but um, but I agree yeah. with you. Um, and also, as you see, it's people being situated in there. And it's not like heavy backstory. It's not like, oh, you've already written 10 pages of backstory. It's that like, oh, do you think there's a chance that this is actually might happen? And like, mm-hmm. boom, right? I like the the varied landscapes that we're going through and the, the seasonality that she's having to deal with. Um, I also like, and I think in Glorantha it would work better than in classic D&D. Classic D&D players are like super jealous of once they have an item, if you ever like take it away from them, they get super mad, right? But here she's like losing, like her luggage keeps like gets sent on to mm-hmm. Istanbul or, you know, while, while, cause they get off the train early. So she's losing all that wardrobe that she just bought. <laughs> you know, it's like, oh, don't worry. It'll get sent along. And then she's like, you know, there's snow in her boots and that kind of stuff like that. Um, and again, I think in classic Lorantha, it's a little bit more sort of, again, that Bronze Age. So you just have your cloak and like one set of clothes and, and you know, a, a bag with like, you know. <laughs> I think it's still very much engenders the hoarding instinct. <laughs> right. <laughs> At least in Lorantha, you yes. often have also, you know, your village and maybe some land to fall back on in hard times. Right. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> I will say that is one thing about sword and sorcery and fantasy fiction. I think we've still had a hard time really bringing into RPGs because so often in sword and sorcery fiction, we have our characters getting separated from their gear mm-hmm. and getting separated from their items. And that and also we have a lot of situations where characters have to plunge into the darkness, which we also have in this as well. We have that whole extended scene with um, Ferris and Tyrion going down the dark stairs and not knowing where they're going. Mm-hmm. But I feel like it's 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 hard to emulate that because players do not want to get separated from their gear and are always trying to find a way to deal to to avoid going into a dark place without a light source. The system <laughs> that did this the best. For me, was um, the two D twenty system by Modiphius. Modiphius, okay. yeah. I, I ran the. I, I didn't run it. I played in the in their Conan game, and it has the these meta currencies that are basically for the player to 
add to their roles and, and allow for higher roles. And at the same time, the GM gets them to make the life to make their life harder. And when you read it, it sounds very clunky. But in game, it actually creates this very cool situation where, you know, when you want to swing off a chandelier and stab someone, and in a normal game, you'd be like, okay, this is an impossible role. I'm not going to do it. Here you can add these points you've been saving up to actually do the thing. <laughs> and it really encourages daring and crazy behavior. And I enjoyed that a lot. <laughs> That's cool. Yeah, and, and, and saving it for the appropriate scene, right? Not just like, yeah. oh, I'm just going to do it. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. One other thing I really liked that I would like to steal is um, I loved how Tyrion couldn't see Hilarion. Um, am I saying his name right? Yeah, Hilarion. Yeah. But um, Ferris could. And I liked the idea of NPCs that maybe only magic users can see. Or if, for example, maybe you're playing like a D&D character who's like a, a cleric of a, you know, God of the dead or something. Maybe you have an NPC who's like a ghost that only that cleric can see. I just think that's kind of a fun idea. I played exactly that character one time with a character yeah. with a special, special like whale that she could use to see the dead. Perfect. Yeah. yeah. I think that I think you could have a lot of fun with that. And I think that would be especially a fun thing to introduce for maybe um, a character who hasn't gotten as much time mm -hmm. in the spotlight I think as b trying to be a more generous judge, um, making making kind of those special moments for the characters, maybe for the players who have a harder time taking up the spotlight, giving them opportunities where they can. Because some people like me, I have no problem like hogging the spotlight. Sometimes I have to kind of dial myself back quite a bit so that I'm not just constantly doing that. Um, but as a judge, it's really helpful to find ways to help those who are struggling to step into the spotlight to get a chance to do mm -hmm. so. I also liked, um, sort of tangentially to this, I mean, particularly this book, a lot of it was social currency. So like Jane says, I shall now be very English when she wants to get her way and sort of like steamroller <laughs> over people. <laughs> right? And then her deliberately trying to, choosing to appear as an old lady uh, also because it, it gave her a certain amount of uh, gravitas that she wouldn't necessarily have when she has the veil down. So people think she's an old lady. Um, I thought that was an interesting um and so things that, again, you know, you can do this in D and D. It's not it's not articulated for D and D. It's better articulated in games like Fate or games that have other social currencies. Um, but um, anytime you have those opportunities um, to do that, and obviously, particularly the D one hundred systems like Call of Cthulhu and RuneQuest and all that, uh, combat is so much more deadly that it's sort of a a side effect. And so that if there's any way you can avoid that until the the the, the the crowning moment of the the scenario, um, you can use those currencies uh, or, or abilities. I think it's it's really a lot of fun, you know. Totally. And I have um, kind of a, a final question to explore in this this category, which is that the magic system that is presented here is very different than the magic system we usually the kind of magic systems we usually encounter in gaming and in fantasy fiction. And on page 77 of my edition, um, they say that magic stops working if you try to explain it, which is why none of our tutors ever teach us any magic. So this is a world where you can't directly learn magic. And this isn't like you say the following words and you make the correct hand gestures and you find the right herbs and powders. You have a reliable result. This isn't that kind of world at all. Um, an analogy I was making in the patron book club is it's like falling asleep. 
if I lay down and I say, fall asleep, fall asleep, fall asleep, I'm not going to fall asleep. I have to let go of my desire to stay awake in order to fall asleep. It's something I just have to relax into and let happen. And magic seems to be very similar here. You can't force it. It just has to happen. Can you see a way to make a magic system like this work in a gaming way at all? If I'm going to be a bit critical, I think magic in this uh, in this book works always works exactly in the way the narrative needs it to. Um, mm-hmm. Second, and that's absolutely how I run a lot of my games. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. When I r- run D&D, you have the magic system, but I'm always, without even thinking about it, in the background also almost running this sort of very soft magic myself and having these... and um, having encounters and things that players do and puzzles they go through that are all magical and not grounded in the rules and that don't have any any particular explanation behind them, but that work to serve the narrative. And I think that's something that yes. I put in in most of the games I run, even if they already have a magic system. Totally. And D&D has done mm-hmm. that since the beginning. Yeah. You know, it's like, yeah, we had liches who extended their life for for thousands of years with magics, which magics do they use? I don't know. But then, like as we, but then as the the additions went up, people were like, well, I guess we need to figure out what magic they use. And then they statted that stuff up. But initially, they they just were there because they were there. We wanted them to be right. there. The thing with um these the belts with these spell lists in D anD D is that this is the stuff you learn at the university. It's not all magic there is. <laughs> yes. Yes. Right. I would say that the magic system, the one, it, if we're really gamify this magic system, we're not talking about how it works in the narrative, although I will also, is that if you were to say, I want to use the my conception of magic as Carolyn Stevermer presented it, then what it is is that you have to look at it and say, the cost is commensurate with the expected result, right? So she has to close a rift that will endanger the entire world. So the cost to her is that she loses all the emotional connection to the memories that she had. And that's like, I've grown, I've grown up. I can remember being a child, but I don't remember that feeling of being a child anymore, right? That's the cost to her, right? There's smaller costs. Yeah. Mannery obviously had the cost of that she never actually got to be a human being, a person, because all she was was this power and this maliciousness, right? And then there's costs in between, like, you know, Jane is much more circumspect about how she uses her power. So she just gets these like debilitating headaches, mm-hmm. but she never does anything super spectacular other than like the hat bomb thing. Or so, you know, so, yeah. I like that. And if you wanted to emulate that in gaming, it would be a conversation between the player and the GM. And maybe the player would start with what they're sacrificing before they explain what they want. So maybe you first start with, these are the things I'm giving up. And these are the things that I want to have happen. And the things that you give up, it's not going to be gold pieces. It's not going to be that cool jeweled dagger. It's going to be emotional things. It's going to be stuff from your character's history. That that sounds a lot like how the basic um, gameplay in the second edition of 7C works. Because there, basically, it's players can technically do in in a turn all they want but they have to accept consequences for it. And the the system tells you to um, basically work with the players to figure out what those consequences are. 
That's right. cool. I think White Hack is fairly similar. I haven't played it. I'm trying to like sort of digest the text, but it's 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 codified as hit points that the magic user is using, but it's not it doesn't necessarily have to be that. The hit points could be any number of things because it could be your your intellectual power or whatever, but there's no described spells. You say, I this is what I want to do, and it's a negotiation with the with the GM on the spot um, as to how that happens. So there are a few systems that do that. Obviously it requires a it's a high trust situation when you try and do this kind of thing. Oh, absolutely. Cool. So we can go ahead and start wrapping up our conversation there. Um, Catherine, do you have any final thoughts about a college of magics, either something you wanted to chat about that we didn't get to, or just kind of a summary of what you thought? I mean, hmm. and no is also an acceptable (laughs) answer. I guess the one thing I want to repeat is that just, I quite like the dialogue. (laughs) Again, I, th- I think it was probably my favorite bit of the book. <laughs> that, that, it was yeah. just fun to read. <laughs> totally. All right. And Katrin, are you working on any projects that you would like our listeners to be aware of? Right at this moment, I am at a bit of a you know break between things. But one thing that should relatively soon come out in print is uh, Manishtana. It's a Passover storytelling game that I've illustrated. It's a very well written game, and I recommend everyone should probably check that out. <laughs> very cool. And where can people find you online? Uh, and I have a website. Um, I don't know. Should I just catch in the remark? It's the, the that's the URL, and there it also has links to all my social media, um, Twitter and Instagram and Tumblr. Though Instagram, it's it's I don't know. I, I can't engage with that website. It's a strange place. Right. Right. Um, and you know your portfolio there is gorgeous. And, I mean, and, yeah, thanks. Yeah, that's right. Oh, oh yes, so, thanks. Yeah, uh, you de- yeah, definitely check it out. Uh, so much, and again, I, I really like the the mix between stuff that's very uh, sort of uh, formalized, and then some of the stuff that you have that's uh, more realistic. Like you have the the weapons and armor, which is very realistic looking and very colorful. I really like that. And hoy, where can folks find us? Right. Um, if you like us, please rate us and review us on your podcatcher of choice, such as Apple Podcasts. Uh, if you want to drop us a note, you can do it at appendixnbookclub at gmail.com. Um, until Twitter fully catches on fire and sinks, uh, we're at, at appendix underscore n for the, the time being. Um, and Jeff, how about our Patreon? Our patrons are able to join us for our patron recordings. Today, we are joined by Rick Byrne and Adam Styers. I'd also like to give a shout out to our newest Patreon member, Michael Brewer. Thanks for joining the gang. Um, Also, I want to go ahead and reach into the hat and give a shout out to a few of our other patrons. Thank you to Joseph, Richard Ruane, Jason White, Dave Saklas, Noah Green, Jeremy Harper, Dan Alexander, Robbie Fioto, and Eric, Eric, Eric. Thank you all for your support. It is much, much, much appreciated. Also, our patrons get to vote on which books we are covering for future episodes. Uh, for episode, when this episode drops, our patrons will be voting on what we're going to cover for episode 145. And for that one, we're going back to our Appendix N required reading. So the four titles that are going to be up for vote are Elsprague de Camp's The Carnelian Cube, Michael Moorcock's The Mad God's Amulet, Gardner F. Fox's Kyrick Warlock Warrior, and Edgar Rice Burroughs' Pirates of Venus. 
So that's what we'll be voting on to cover for 145. And we are all wrapped up for today. So, uh, Katrin, thank you for being on the show. Thanks so much for inviting me. Thanks so much, Rosanna. Yes. Always an, honor. Always an honor and pleasure to meet new people on the show. All right, everybody. See you in the stacks. Read on. The library is closed. <laughs>